Hello, and welcome to the Lasting Impact Wellness Podcast, where together we explore ways to help you optimize your health and achieve sustainable well being. No one deserves to live an unhealthy life because they are overtasked, overstimulated, and overwhelmed. I'm your co host, Dr. Laura Hayes, and we'll be joined by Dr. Parker Hayes as we explore new perspectives and strategies rooted in self awareness, deep connections, and science based practices designed to create lasting impact for you and those around you. Please keep in mind this podcast is for the purpose of education, introspection, and community connection and should not be mistaken for medical advice. Be sure to subscribe and share with others. Let's be well together. Welcome to Lasting Impact Wellness, the podcast that helps you optimize your health and well-being through science-based practices, practical knowledge, and honest discussions. I'm your host today, Dr. Laura Hayes. I'd like to take a brief moment to thank all of our listeners for tuning in each week and providing feedback and topic suggestions for episodes and supporting our efforts at LIW to add value to your well-being in the form of spoken word and discussion. Our goal is to provide you with helpful knowledge, insightful perspectives, and interesting conversations. So again, thanks for listening and for sharing the podcast with others. When it comes to our health and well-being, we face many challenges throughout our lives. If you've ever been in pain, injured, or undergone surgery, then today's topic has and may continue to show up for you. If you work in an emergency department like I do, it's a topic on the forefront of your mind every shift. And if you're a parent, it's a topic that likely frightens you. The bottom line is that if you are human, if you are a citizen of the world, particularly of the United States, then you or someone you know has likely been impacted or touched by the opioid epidemic. It's everywhere, and we must work together to increase awareness, remove stigma, and create a space for open, honest conversations like the one we're about to have today. According to the National Institute on Drug Abuse, opioid-involved overdose deaths rose from about 21,000 in 2010 to 48,000 in 2017 and remained steady through 2019. This was followed by a significant increase in 2020 with 68,000 reported deaths and again in 2021 with over 80,000 reported overdose deaths, and that number continues to rise. My guest today, Dr. Don Stater, is a board-certified emergency and addiction medicine physician and opioid specialist. He's the founder of Stater Opioid Consultants, an organization that focuses on helping clinicians, hospitals, and quality improvement agencies address the opioid epidemic through adoption of innovative clinical practices and intelligent policy to improve quality of care, health equity, and population outcomes. Don is also a creator, a podcaster, a film producer, and social entrepreneur. Don, truly your work has been and continues to be both enlightening and inspiring, and I thank you for being with me today on the podcast. Welcome. That's very sweet. Thank you so much for having me. So, Lots of times I have the guests go through their background and what drew them to the field and such, but I'm going to leave you with that brief introduction and just get into this topic because I think it's hugely important and there's a lot to cover. So can you tell the listeners just a little bit of history about what has now become the opioid crisis? Yeah, that's a big question. And maybe my answer is going to be a little atypical, which is the opioid crisis is millennia old. Uh, We've had opioids as a class of drugs since 4,000 BC. We've known that it's been a problem with some persons who start taking opioids since around 4,000 BC. (laughs) So this is not a new problem or a new drug, and this is not a new disease. 
When it comes to the American opioid crisis, really, we think about it in three different waves, at least in terms of our modern opioid crisis. The first wave being prescription drug misuse, and that was largely driven by physicians like me and you, Laura. Mm. I remember in residency being given lectures about how aggressively you should be treating pain and using opioids and how aggressively I used to prescribe opioids for absolutely every painful condition. So I was part of that part of that opioid crisis, especially around two decades ago. After that, we had a crisis of heroin, especially when we started restricting and decreasing prescriptions around 2012. That heroin crisis lasted for around a decade. And then really in around 2014, 15, depending on what region that you are in the country, you started seeing the infiltration of fentanyl. And right now we're in the fentanyl crisis. And all of these compound on top of each other. So I like to remind people that even though the majority of deaths are driven by fentanyl, we still lost around 16,000 Americans to prescription opioid overdose last year. So it's not like one went away and another replaced it completely, but these things oftentimes compound. And what we have now is, of course, a crisis where it's the number one killer of Americans under the age of 50, a top killer of pregnant women, a top driver of kids entering the foster care system. It really is a crisis that is affecting every community and many families across our country. Yeah. Wow. I mean, sometimes when you say it that way and you hear it like that, it's just, it's heartbreaking. And when you were talking about how we sort of moved from this practice of really treating pain aggressively with opioids, you know, I think that was, especially from a physician standpoint, initially we thought of it as the first do no harm. You don't want your patients to suffer. We don't want people to be in pain. So we have these medications easily accessible to us. We should be using them. We should be addressing pain when it presents itself. And part of this is me watching shows like American Pain and Dope Sick, which were great, by the way, and I'd be curious to hear your opinion on those. But it's not really a surprise now in the retrospective scope to see that we're in this crisis. These medications are so highly addictive that it makes sense. You take these for a while because you have a real, actual painful condition, and then before you know it, you're down this really dark path. Yeah. And, and what I'd say about that common narrative is it's one path to addiction. Um, but there are many paths that lead people to end up with problems with substances or behaviors. So it's not the only path. Mm -hmm. But in regards to medical practice, I do think that we suffered from two things. The first of which is we were all fell victim to really amazing marketing and pseudoscience that said that what we were doing was safe, what we were doing was efficacious and was so in the long term. And I think that we can point the finger there on drug companies, as is well documented by some of the documentaries you mentioned in other books like Purdue Pharma, et cetera, that were part of this system of greed and really with disregard for population and personal health. But then I think the other thing that was much more personal is I think that all of us in the medical field, especially when we started seeing increasing problems with addiction, were all victims of the Buddhist concept of idiot compassion, which is this kind of thought that, okay, well, we just give people what we need in the moment, even if it's of detriment to their long-term health. And with something as human and as ubiquitous as pain, really these simple solutions are oftentimes the wrong way to treat pain, which is extremely human and really should be treated not just with medications, but with a multimodal approach that includes you know, pain psychology that includes non-opioids, and when appropriate, includes opioids, but really with a greater view toward 
the role of pain, and the fact that pain many times is natural and should not be ameliorated as the ultimate goal of pain control. So certainly pharma and the medical professionals, we did play a large role, it sounds like, in this epidemic. And it seems like there was probably a turning point or a pivotal point in the crisis or the epidemic when there was tighter control on these medications. From what I understand, correct me if I'm wrong, that suddenly this was recognized and then essentially legislation came in and said, okay, we're going to stop the supply. And then that seems like a pivotal time for patients and for people with substance use disorders to suddenly lose their supply. Suddenly they weren't getting these medications from their doctors. They weren't getting actual prescriptions prescribed to them. And then they had to turn elsewhere in order to I would suspect in a lot of people's minds to treat their pain, not necessarily to feed their addiction in their mind, but to treat their pain. So can you talk a little bit about that and how that kind of changed the game, so to speak? Yeah, for sure. So we had an overprescription problem and we had an oversupply of legitimate opioid prescribed by physicians, dispensed by pharmacies, which then with really, I think the publication of the CDC guidelines in 2015 was the true, if you want to point out a tipping point, that was probably the biggest one. And those guidelines were, I think, scientifically based, well-articulated, and almost universally misapplied. And by misapplied, what I mean by that is they were taken as inflexible when it came to patient care. So what you saw on the bedside level, was many people who were cut off from opioids, who were aggressively tapered down to 90 morphine mill equivalents, and physicians who became suddenly scared of prescribing opioids to patients who previously had been dependent or had physiologic dependence on opioids, whether or not they had an addiction or not. And when we do that to patients, we put them in absolutely severe misery. I mean, when you talk with patients who go through opioid withdrawal, they will say that it's worse than death, that they feel both psychologically assaulted physiologically terrible, and the angst and the discomfort that it actually generates is one of the worst experiences people can ever go through. Now, when you do that, people will obviously try to seek relief. And oftentimes, because we have such a thriving illicit drug market, people will turn toward illicit drugs, which in the past might have been prescriptions sold by someone who was getting overprescribed, but then more and more became heroin, and now almost universally as fentanyl which is extremely cheaply manufactured, extremely easy to obtain, and extremely lethal. So all of these factors really have driven our current overdose crisis. But in terms of, again, physician behavior and medical practice behavior, is again, we applied simple solutions to complex problems, and the ramifications of those are still bearing out today. So... While we're on the topic, let's talk about fentanyl. I know about fentanyl because I'm an emergency physician, but a lot of our listeners are not in the medical field. And I have a text thread with my girlfriends from home, for example, these women that I have been friends with since we were in kindergarten, and we all have various school-age children. And it's a topic that comes up on our text thread. You know, what is this? What do I tell my kids? So I want to use this as a platform for knowledge and information. So let's just start with the basics for somebody out there who's listening and is not in the medical field. They're not familiar with this and they just hear that word fentanyl and they're petrified. Let's start with the basics. What is fentanyl? And tell me what you would be telling a friend who came to you and said, what is fentanyl, Don? Yeah. So first of all, fentanyl is an opioid and opioids constitute a class of both synthetic drugs 
and natural occurring drugs. So natural occurring drugs or ones that are derived from natural occurring plants, such as poppy, are often called opiates. So you'll often hear those two terms conflated. Opiates are naturally occurring. Things like morphine, thebane, opium, those are all opiates. But then when we started manufacturing drugs and producing things like methadone, oxycodone, and fentanyl, those are all synthetics. And those oftentimes are captured under opioids. Now, what's so unique around fentanyl? is fentanyl is a specifically potent opioid that is very easy to manufacture. And what that's done is made it so that fentanyl is able to be mass produced, easily smuggled, and easily pressed into pills, which is why it's now so, again, widespread across our country. And just as an example, so when we used to have a heroin, black tar heroin and powdered heroin illicit drug supply, you actually had to grow it. You had to grow poppy. You had to have an acre, an acre of crop that someone tended to, that someone irrigated, that someone harvested. Then you needed to process your heroin. And then if you got a kilogram of heroin that mostly produced in Mexico, that usually cost you around three to $4,000 to grow, to manufacture, to smuggle. And then once you distributed it on American streets, you earned around $1.2 million. So, so that's a hell of a return on investment to go from 4,000 to 1.2 million. A lot of people took that risk, but it was still time limited. You can only grow so much poppy. Mm -hmm. uh, it took a while to do so. But now with fentanyl, you're talking about something that's a lab-based process, that if someone has precursors, you can make a kilogram of fentanyl for a few hundred dollars because it is 50 to 100 times more potent than morphine and around 50 times more potent than heroin, you actually need a lot less of it that you can then cut and distribute. So that same kilogram of fentanyl costs around $300. And once you end up cutting it and distributing it with pills, you can earn upwards of $1 billion. So you don't need to be an economist to think, okay, well, there's a lot of money there. And a lot of the cartels went from producing heroin to producing fentanyl because it just makes sense to do so. It's easier to smuggle. And also, I think the other thing that people don't realize is the medium in which it is delivered is a much more acceptable medium for the average person. So if I told you how many people here would shoot heroin, most people are scared of needles. Most people think, oh my gosh, there's this huge psychological barrier to actually injection drug use. But then when you actually put it in something that's as natural to Americans as a pill, which most people start giving their kids in the form of vitamins. This is now a very, very acceptable way psychologically to ingest chemicals. And whether that's smoked, whether those are ingested or whether those are dissolved and injected, what you see is that fentanyl use has become very, very common. And we can debate whether that's a supply side problem, meaning, hey, it's just so ubiquitous that like, you know, people are using it and that, that probably has some truth or whether it's a demand problem, meaning that all the infrastructure or all the components there for people to develop use disorders are present. And I think it's a little bit of both. So it's not an either or, but really it's it's a ubiquitous supply and a nation and a, if you will, civilization that is really hurting on many different frontiers and is looking for a way to chemically cope. Wow. So let me ask, maybe this is a weird or stupid question, but it's a genuine question. Why is it showing up everywhere? Is that because it's 
so easy to produce and you only need a little bit, like if you're the drug supplier, you only need to use up a little bit of your drug to add it to some other drug in order to give that person an effect and then hook them and they may get addicted and then they'll come back and they'll be a returning customer. Yeah. So why are they adding fentanyl? It's because it's cheap, because it gives people a good euphoria or good relief, and because it's easily pressed. They have all the components to do it. And whether you're selling that as truly fentanyl, which most people know, which comes oftentimes in blues, M30s in my community, it might be different where you are, or whether it's sold as a fake Xanax or a fake Percocet or something that's more illicit, or whether it's made its way into the cocaine supply or methamphetamine supply. So there's different ways that this happens. Sometimes it's intentionally, meaning, hey, let's just, people are asking for Xanax, let's just put the fentanyl in this pill and tell them it's Xanax and let's make some money. Or whether it's accidental. Uh, Hey, we produce fentanyl in the same place we produce all these other illicit drugs. And fentanyl is potent enough that a little bit of cross-contamination might end up in enough for a fatal overdose or at least an intoxication. Mm -hmm. So it's probably a pretty mixed picture. There's other people who say, hey, this is this is something that it's intentionally being added because opioid withdrawal is worse than other withdrawal states, whether that's methamphetamine withdrawal, et cetera. So why don't we put this in be, because then it will be, people will have a harder time quitting it. And all those might have some component of truth to them, but I'd say, again, it's a nuanced probably answer when it comes to why fentanyl is so common, but some of the drivers are that there's tremendous demand for drugs and that this is amongst the cheapest to produce drugs that's most powerfully addictive. So it's cheaper, I'm making sure I'm understanding it in my own mind. It's cheaper for a drug dealer to get a bunch of fentanyl pills and sell those as Xanax than to actually get a bunch of Xanax pills. Like the Xanax pills for the drug dealer are going to be more expensive to get. And so the return on investment for the drug supplier is higher if they use the cheaper product, which in this case is fentanyl. Yeah. A lot of this is an economically driven decision to have such a such a drug supply. And also just a practicality. Again, some of these drugs are much more hard to obtain than fentanyl is. So if your livelihood is based on selling drugs, then yes, you're gonna you're going to, you know, use what's available. And your salesman or saleswomanship mm-hmm. is gonna have you, you know, tell people what they want to hear so that they buy your products. So this, again, is it's not very complicated, but it is something that I think also doesn't have a simple answer because it's either intentional or unintentional. It's either cross-contaminated or it's intentional. I know what I'm doing and I'm just selling to you because again, it makes me money. It's a way that I can move product. It's a way that I can earn income. Well, and I suspect too, even intentionally, it's a difficult thing to moderate because as you mentioned, we're talking micro doses here of fentanyl that can be lethal. So even if you're intentionally creating this product, you're intentionally creating a fentanyl containing pill, I would suspect that it's difficult to really have that measured in a way that it's sort of regulated for the person who's making it to know exactly how much fentanyl component ends up in each pill. And it's probably not consistent and not equal. And you could be someone who buys these from the same dealer all the time. You know, it's fentanyl, you know what you're getting, but then you happen to get that one pill that has a little bit extra in it that one time. And then that can be your fatal dose. 
Yeah, and that's very true, Laura. The variability of the drug supply and the potency of the drug supply have made it much more dangerous and much more fatal. We have the most toxic drug supply that we've ever had in our history in terms of just its lethality. And I think that we're seeing that in the numbers of overdose that we're seeing in our emergency practices and also just in our communities. So is this primarily a United States threat? Is this primarily a problem in the U.S.? I mean, of course, they have these drugs available across the world, but it seems to me that the U.S. is taking the lead on this. But is that accurate? You know, so I'll preface this by saying I'm no expert in in international drug supplies and overdose rates. But I do know that fentanyl has become a much larger problem across the globe because, again, I think it doesn't take a rocket scientist to say, wow, this seems to be really successful and really profitable and pretty easy to manufacture if I can get a good chemist and I can get good precursor chemicals. So we do see a lot more fentanyl, I know, in Europe. I know that Mexico itself, which produces most of our fentanyl, also has a significant fentanyl problem, you know, but I do not know about other corners of the globe. Mm, Okay. Can you talk a little bit about what's being done either at the state level or the federal level to address this crisis? I mean, it definitely seems like there is more awareness. Of course, there's always going to be more work to be done, but share with me, share with our listeners, what are some of the programs out there? What are some of the initiatives that are ongoing right now that you're, that you are proud of, or that you think actually have some merit and some hope for us? Yeah. I think one of the things that I'd ask us is why do we have a hundred thousand Americans that we lose unnecessarily every year to overdoses? And the fact is that it's because our system is producing exactly what our system is meant to produce. So when you think about that, you can think about it in two in two ways, which is one supply, which is we've already talked about the drug supply. It's ubiquitous, it's lethal, it's in every community. So we have a very bad drug supply. But then I think the thing that we have more accountability for in terms of our population, in terms of our medical systems in particular, is that we have a really terrible addiction treatment system. And I don't think that we have anywhere to look but ourselves in terms of why that system is so terrible. So we do not have off-ramps. We do not have good treatment for addiction. We do not reliably dispense naloxone to people who are at risk. We do not have good ways to rehabilitate people, although we know how to do so. So our apathy toward people who struggle with substance use disorders has driven a culture where it's okay to neglect, to persecute, and to allow people to die. So when you have a medical disease with ubiquitous precursors and you don't have the ability to treat it, what you get is 100,000 people who die unnecessarily a year and a lot more families which are ravished by what is ultimately a preventable outcome, overdose with naloxone, Mm -hmm. and a treatable disease, addiction, with methadone, buprenorphine, naltrexone, and then also non-medical treatments for addiction. So I think that there's a lot of accountability we need to look at in terms of ourselves and especially the medical systems. I think also then it's not just about medical systems because, and I hope you don't mind me talking about this a little bit, but you know, what drives addiction? I don't know. I guess it's kind of multifactorial. I mean, as my experience as an emergency physician, it seems to go hand in hand oftentimes with mental illness, which is also another field where we have very limited resources and just not a great system in place to help those patients either. But teach me, educate me. Yeah. So I think that 
You know, there's a few things that are common narratives that I hear oftentimes and when I speak with both clinicians and with lay people, which is a concept that it's just about the chemical and this chemical is really addictive, which is true. Some chemicals produce a lot more euphoria and produce a lot more dependency a lot more rapidly. So, so fentanyl is one of those. But I don't think that's the story of addiction. It's not just about sticky chemicals. And it's not just about severe mental illness, which I think is definitely a precursor to a lot of addiction but is not the ubiquitous pathway to addiction. Because I think that addiction, again, if we look at just a, just global definitions, we don't need to go through the 11-point DSM criteria to diagnose substance use disorders. But as I've worked in the space more and more, I see how common addiction is, including in physicians. So I bet, Laura, that you know other doctors, or you yourself might have an addiction. And I have an addiction. I know what my addiction is, by the way. I'm addicted to work. And when I think about my relationship with my work, I meet a lot of DSM criteria for addiction. Not a chemical addiction in this case, but a behavioral addiction. And many physicians fall into this, by the way. So what I want to do is, is instead of having this myopic view of what addiction is, really, I think that we can start on some baseline human characteristics, which is People who are prone to the disease of addiction usually have one very common attribute, and that is that the world as it currently is, is not enough. So that oftentimes when the people most prone is the world is not as it should be because the world is traumatic, because the world has not treated me well. And this is where Adverse childhood events, such as trauma, abuse, sexual assault, etc., are very common pathways to addiction. Because once those happen to an individual, especially a young individual, it wires their brain to the point where they feel anxious all the time. They feel unhappy. And we can assign labels, but I, I like to keep things more human. But we can all understand that impulse. And many of us who have experienced trauma in our lives know what it feels like to walk around feeling like something is not right. Hmm. Once you actually then do something, either have an experience or ingest a compound or a chemical that starts ameliorating or giving you relief from that sensation, it's very natural to want to do that again. So whether that's drinking after a hard shift, a lot of doctors again do that. Whether that's taking a pain pill, because again, the world's not right, I'm in pain. People fall into these either chemicals or practices or behaviors that start out very, very naturally as a source of relief. But then as they grow, become much more compulsive, much more destructive, and result in then a disease that we decide to put a label on, which is addiction. But again, these are very, very human behaviors. I see a lot of commonalities between a lot of people who we view as extremely highly successful and I think that person has what is, in many cases, the other side of the coin from someone else that you call addictive. And then also to put on the other thing, which is people will then say, well, what about my person who doesn't, my friend who doesn't have any trauma in their life, but's developed an addiction? Well, it's again, they might be really high achievers. They might be unhappy with mediocrity or unhappy with the world as it is. 
And people like this, for example, I often point to rock stars. It's like, man, they're amazingly creative, talented people who are extremely driven and who oftentimes end up with severe, fatal substance use disorders. And the rate of substance use disorders also are so high in lawyers, dentists, physicians, these very, very driven people. So again, I think that I want to change a little bit of that narrative of addiction from saying it's just people who are down and out or have mental illness or because of a sticky chemical and say, for all of us, it's within me. Those seeds of addiction are within every single human being. And the process of addiction really is a spectrum, just like intelligence, just like all these other human measurables is there's a full spectrum of addictive disorders and they're a lot more ubiquitous than we think. Yeah, that's an excellent summary and an interesting way to to think about it. I mean, it makes me, I guess, hopeful in a way, though, that things like education and increasing awareness, talking about this more, helping people to understand that addiction doesn't look one certain way, that the person who lives next door to you who looks like she has it all together and all put together all the time still could be struggling with something like this, that this doesn't have to look like the person suffering from homelessness, you know, panhandling on the street. This could be your neighbor. This could be your daughter. This could be your parent, your friend, your colleague, your spouse. Again, I guess it makes me a little hopeful to think that by increasing awareness, by having conversations like this, even, and maybe figuring out ways where we can focus more on the preventative aspects of this so that we can stop, help prevent somebody from going down that path. And I mean, honestly, Parker and I were talking about this interview before we came on camera and we were having breakfast this morning and just kind of talking about this stuff and how this topic applied to what we do at Lasting Impact. And mm -hmm. we were saying how one of the things that we really use as a foundation for our clients is growing and deepening your self-awareness. And part of that is so that you know what makes you you, you understand your intricacies, but you also understand your triggers and you can recognize red flags that pop up and appear within yourself earlier if you are in tune and connected to that. If you're someone who can recognize, hey, I'm really struggling with work right now. I'm really feeling burned out and have the awareness to say, you know, I feel like lately, every time I come home, I'm I'm having a glass of wine after work. And you know what? It makes me feel better. It makes me feel relaxed. But to then stop and have the awareness to say, maybe that's not the best habit to get into, you know? So I think there's something to be said for that of, again, increasing awareness of how this happens, you know, to whom this happens. And then, you know, how can we stop it for ourselves or our loved ones in our communities before it becomes that major crisis or that thing? Yeah. yeah, And I appreciate you mentioning that because that's exactly my point, which is that this is much more ubiquitous than you think okay. when it comes to the disease of addiction. And I think too, if we want to dive even further into the philosophy of it, it's because we are currently in a culture that does not value being happy with what you have. Hmm. And really, this is what again, is fuel for addiction. Trauma is fuel for addiction. Loneliness is fuel for addiction, but also unhappiness with normal existence, lack of gratitude. Those are all fuel for addiction. And sometimes, again, the same 
And like, you know, it might be the same impulses that then drive us to aspire to greater things, to build a better life for ourselves, to, to work hard at something. And those are very human, those are really amazing impulses. But that same impulse, if just skewed a little bit, you know, and put in a different direction, can be extremely self-destructive. So again, this is a really, really human disease. And I think that being in addiction medicine is a lot about wisdom as much as it is about application of medications and diagnoses and diagnostic testing, et cetera. There's a few things in medicine that I consider wisdom professions. And there's a few things in medicine that I consider really kind of more, let's say, not wisdom-based, but procedural or like, you know, mechanics-based. So for example, a spine surgeon does not need to have a really great grasp on what makes people well both psychologically and happy, you know, they just need to be able to fix your spine, put a few screws in in the right place and not paralyze you. And they do that time and time again, and they change lives, save lives, et cetera. But no one would say like, I'm going to go to my spine surgeon because I really want to have a deep conversation. <laughs> but then there's other professions. And I think of things like palliative care, where you're really helping people have a great last chapter of their life, including fulfilling lots of different meaning. That's a wisdom part of medicine. Addiction medicine is very similar, except people live longer, hopefully. <laughs> but really, when it comes to work that we do in addiction medicine, it's stabilizing people's unsafe drug use or unsafe behaviors or destructive behaviors, and then really helping them deconstruct all the aspects of their life that have made them want to cover it up. And really, what we find is that people oftentimes need to deal with past trauma, that drives addiction, that drives anxiety, that drives unhappiness. They need to reconcile with people in their family or others that they've done wrong. They need to grow as people and then they do better. And that's what I think is really pertinent to your, exactly what you guys do, which is really, you're talking about once you have greater happiness, greater fulfillment, et cetera, your anxiety levels go down, all these toxic things that are terrible for your health. And then all these other terrible behaviors because guess what? If you don't poison yourself, usually you live a really good way. If you don't poison yourself with belief in terms of you feel terrible and anxious all the time, if you don't poison yourself with what you put in your body, which might be really crappy food, or if you don't poison yourself with things that are actually poisons like alcohol or nicotine, then those are baseline foundations for living good, healthy lives, or at least healthy lives. Yeah, that is so true. Really insightful. I do want to return to that question of what makes you hopeful? Yeah, well, first, thank you for keeping me accountable. Now, what makes me hopeful? I do think that right now, we do have a lot of attention on the opioid crisis and a lot of energy that's going into it that I hope we do not waste. And I do see across the country a lot more involvement in, one, people being aware of it, being concerned about it. And then medical systems actually starting to build addiction care systems. Again, this is a treatable disease, but the access that people have to addiction treatment is often very limited. Whether that's inpatient treatment, that sometimes happens in psychiatric or addiction treatment facilities, or whether that's just regular treatment from hospitals and clinics. And I think that's really the missing piece. Not everyone needs to go to rehab. Not every addiction recovery story needs to start with 45 days somewhere far away from your family and community. A lot of addiction treatment can happen at the hospital, in a primary care clinic, with physicians who are prescribing common medications, whether that's buprenorphine or suboxone, 
whether that's methadone and having a methadone clinic in your community or an opioid treatment program, which is the more professional term. It's also people building peer recovery spaces where those are mutual self-help groups where people really help coach each other into recovery. And all of those are different pathways to recovery. But I do see a significant willingness for medical communities in building those systems. Hmm. And finally, when it comes to naloxone, which is something I'm very passionate about, we have a, a nonprofit that we run called the Naloxone Project that really talks about how to get this into hands of people at risk, is naloxone is now over the counter. That happened just you know, this week, Laura, that you can walk into a pharmacy or Walmart and buy naloxone. So that's a great step. But really, we also have to figure out ways that for people who can't afford 50 bucks to pay for naloxone, how do we get in their hands? Especially since some of those more marginalized, resource-poor individuals are those who are at highest risk for overdose. And then I do hope that once we build this addiction treatment system, that we can also have harder conversations and larger conversations around what it means to be well in our country. And what it means to be well is probably a good way to put it. Because I think right now, we still have a culture that values other things over health and wellness, and oftentimes at the detriment to both. I think that's a great statement, and I wholeheartedly agree. So I want to be respectful of your time. This has been an amazing conversation. I would love to continue this conversation. Maybe we can even have a part two. I think there's so much more to discuss and uncover, even going through in more detail some of the treatments and even some of the programs that are implemented in the school systems. Gosh, I thought back to the D.A.R.E. program I had when I was a kid and they would tell us, don't do drugs and this is what marijuana is. And I mean, gosh, how that program could and probably has evolved, but there's still certainly more work to do. Tell our listeners where they can find you if they want to connect with you or if they want to hear more about your past and current projects or just chat with you. Yeah, we're always happy to collaborate. We do several different projects across the country. The one that's probably most accessible to individuals is the Naloxone Project, which is our 501c3 that, again, is a national 501c3 that does distribution of naloxone and really tries to prevent overdose deaths. And then for other things, we do have a website, opioidconsultants.com, which is mostly for if you're a medical professional listening to this, an administrator, and want to take better care of patients who experience pain or patients who have addictions. That's really the type of work that we do. And then I'm always happy to engage with people on LinkedIn, which is my primary site. I also recognize the addictive nature of a lot of social media. So I try to actually limit my social media because that's an area And we don't need to get into this, but I think this sometimes drives unwellness or dissatisfaction with your own own life. So I don't really partake in a lot of social media. I I love the human conversations and connections. And if you want to have one of those, I'm always happy to reach out to people and engage with people. That's awesome. Don, thank you so much for joining me today. I would love to have you back on the podcast sometime. There is so much more on this topic that we could discuss. We didn't even really get into the treatment aspect of this and I'd love to talk with you about what we can be doing at the community level and our school systems, more improvement that we can be making in our emergency departments and our medical specialties in the community. But, you know, certainly as a physician myself, a mother, a wife, a daughter, a sister, a friend, I often wonder what can I be doing to make an impact? And we recently interviewed Chris Raymond on our podcast, and he mentioned a quote that was, he said, do for one what you wish you could do for many. And I think that quote certainly applies here. 
Well, Don, while the opioid epidemic is a growing and concerning threat to both our personal but also our global health and well-being, people like you and organizations like yours really help to show us that if we can let go of fear and judgment and instead meet this issue with curiosity and thoughtful action, we may just start to swing the pendulum toward better accessibility, we can discover improved treatment options, and really just reduce risk overall. So thanks again for being here with me and having this conversation today. Well, thank you so much for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you again to our guest and to our listeners. As always, we appreciate your support, your feedback, and topic suggestions for future episodes at info at lastingimpactwellness.com. Thank you for your time and your energy. Let's be well together. 